Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really excited to have back with me today Dr. Bob Sikorsky, who listeners will remember was here for an Introduction to Trauma episode that we did, and now is back to really delve down a little bit more into thromboelastography. If you don't know what that is, we'll talk about it in a minute. But this episode is so interesting that it's actually going to be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. So regular listeners know that Anesthesiology News likes to feature our episodes from time to time when it's something really interesting for their readers. They've got a lot of interesting stuff, and you can check it out. Their archives, all kinds of multimedia and web content at anesthesiologynews.com. Head over there, see if you can find this episode and everything else they've got. So let's jump in. Dr. Sikorsky, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Chad. It's a pleasure to be back. I will say that Dr. Sikorsky is actually on vacation, and he has come in so generously to do this episode while on vacation. So, Bob, really appreciate it. Always my pleasure. Let's jump in and, uh, and talk about it. So what is thromboelastography? Well, most people look at thromboelastography as a, a new technology, maybe clinically new to most practitioners, but actually the, um, the theory uh, behind it has been around since 1948. Uh, it was uh, actually, you can still find the article, it's a German article if you can understand the language. But there's different spinoffs of thromboelastography, like thromboelastometry, which is ROTEM, uh, which is used primarily in, um, in Europe. And uh, the military has really adapted to Rotem as well. Um, we get different values, uh, but really the same information is pulled out uh, from both uh, thromboelastography and thromboelastometry. And it's just a matter of taste. And, and I, I've been around and been using TEG since the 1980s, so that's my go-to um, uh, kind of analysis of whole blood clotting. Okay. I feel more comfortable with that. And so that's what these tests are. They're analyses of whole blood clotting. Correct. Correct. And when we look at standard laboratory testing, we're basically looking at factor activity and a supernatant of plasma tested at 37 degrees. It's a very small part of the whole process. All the cells involved in whole blood clotting, like platelet, platelets, activated white cells, um, cells containing tissue factor are all discarded when, when we send blood down for laboratory testing. And yes, there is a place for that. Uh, however, uh, in my, my realm in, in trauma and cardiac, we, we prefer basically a cellular-based theory of clotting and the analysis of it. Great. So how does this actually work? How do you, you want to run a Rotem or a TAG, what do you actually do? Well, you... Uh, you could do you could do both. You could, you could send native blood, but it has to be done within about four minutes. And there's different reference values. However, the standard testing is you have a citrated blue top tube. You send it down to the lab, and uh, what they will do is, in the case of thromboelastography, which I, I think we'll just we'll stay with that for mm-hmm. now. Uh, they they put a small 0.36 cc's of, of blood in a, in a crucible in a cup, uh, and add an activator like Kalin. Uh, and uh, they will then um, kind of reverse the effects of the citrate with a small millimolar dose of calcium, and that begins that kind of clotting cascade, that enzymatic process. The cup is then raised up, and the pin is in the middle attached to the device in terms of uh, a sensor, and uh, the cup rotates 4.45 degrees in each direction. And as that activator passes through that enzymatic uh, phase, that, that kind of uh, split point R time 
that we'll get into a little later, uh, you'll get the beginning of fiber strands, and that will adhere to the pin, and it will join that pin to the sidewall of the cup. And then you will see the, the development of that classic tag trace. Uh, and, it, and it gives us an insight into each segment of whole blood clotting. So we can an, analyze them together and separately, both at the same time. Great. So basically, that pin is getting more and more kind of tension as it moves through the blood. It's getting harder and harder to move through, and that's what the machine is measuring. Well, actually, the cup is moving around the pin, mm -hmm. and as the pin gets attached by fibrin strands and platelets and, and red cells that are caught up in the process as well, you'll see that the pin will start to move in concert with the cup okay. in each direction. And if eventually there is lysis, then there will be this kind of discontinuity in this movement. It won't be as, uh, there won't be like this, this concert, uh, a movement in concert with the side of the cup. So we'll see a decrease in the width of that tracing, which would indicate some form of fibrinolysis or lysis. Perfect. Okay. And then, you know, since we do have some European listeners for Rotem, it's similar? It's, it's a pin in a cup? or is Well, it, it basically isn't affected by motion. So um, it's, it's really not like on a spring-loaded uh, mechanism like, like TAG. But with the new uh, devices coming out, we're, we're seeing more and more that that's, that has more tension from the, the people uh, at Hemanetics in terms of being sensitive to movement. So they're, they're changing up the way that they'll be doing the testing as well. Okay. So once again, the, the Rotem really has been adapted by the military and uh, some cardiac programs. Uh, because of the insensitivity or lack of sensitivity to motion. Gotcha. So it's not as affected by motion. Correct. Gotcha. Okay. So, and there, I know some places they actually have these machines right there in the OR, right? They have a, a tag machine, for example, in the trauma room or in the cardiac suite. Correct. Uh, in the past, it was more point-of-care testing. Okay. Uh, but because of the uh, QI and QA issues, uh, that the lab likes to keep uh, more of a, an attention okay. to to their quality uh, measurements. So that's kind of gone out of favor in terms of point of care. However, with the new devices, uh, we're seeing this resurgence in point of care testing. Okay, great. And so people may out there, you may be doing this yourself, actually loading the blood in the machine, or you may just be sending the blue top tubes down to the lab. But certainly find out from your own institution what they want you to do to get this done. And then the other, the other thing you want to know is how can you see the results. So at least at our shop, the results come out in the electronic medical record only as numbers. If you want to see it, you have to log into a separate system. Correct. There's a software package that comes along with the system itself. It's called Remote View, and then you can actually see it real time and treat accordingly. Great. All right. So you mentioned that basically the information that we get from this is how is the blood clotting? How is the whole blood clotting cascade working? Is that kind of the information that we're getting? Correct. Correct. On a macro level. And then so let's drill down. What do we actually get? You know, what numbers do we see? What parts of this graph do, are, are printed out? And what does it tell us? Well, it, it's really important to understand that there's two basic theories of blood clotting. One is the liquid theory, which McFarland's cas classic cascade is based on from the 1960s, 68, I believe. And the other is cellular-based clotting, where we have an initiation, an amplification, and a propagation phase, all uh, surrounding uh, platelets as, as the centerpiece. Thromogeneration, platelet activation, and the formation of a fibrin multimer. 
So it's it's important to really understand that cellular cellular based clotting theory primarily. So when we send the blood down and they perform the test, and and again it's with a KLN activator counteracting the citrate in the blue top tube with a small dose of calcium. Uh, and once that activation has occurred, and the pin is the cup is raised up to the pin, the cup is now spinning, as I said, 4.45 degrees in each direction. And we're in this enzymatic phase. We're in this phase where all the factors are being activated prior to us reaching the point where clotting begins, or that cleavage of fibrinogen to fibrin begins. And in order for that to begin, we need thrombin to be activated. We need that thrombin burst when we get to that common part of that pathway, right, around 10A. And what we'll see is we'll see a straight line, and then we'll, we'll see that line initially begin to separate. It splits, which is the split point. So the R time is that enzymatic portion, and that split point is where it kind of uh, separates. So the combination of that split point and the initiation of the R actually becomes the R time. So when the clot reaches two millimeters in thickness, that's the R time from the initiation through the split point. And when we look at an R time split point ratio, that actually, that delta gives us the significance of the thrombin burst. So we have the initiation phase to the split point, and then when we get two millimeters of clotting, that becomes the R time. Once we get the thrombin burst, that thrombin then begins to cleave fibrinogen to fibrin. When we we see that fibrin, the fibrin kinetics, the indication of that fibrin kinetics then gives us how rapid the clot is forming. So when we get to 20 millimeters of clot time. That's the K. So the K is an indication of that fibrin then starting to activate or starting to interact with platelets because that thrombin activates the platelets. The platelets then begin to get caught up. So as you can see, we're developing this three-dimensional picture of clot and the two-dimensional kind of tracing. So we're actually analyzing this whole process coming together very rapidly. So the K, the K is an indication of fibrin kinetics. So from the split point to the K gives us the alpha angle, and that gives us the, the rapidity or how robust the fibrin kinetics are. And this is the point where the fibrin starts to interact with the platelets, the activated platelets. And that then proceeds to the maximum amplitude. And that maximum amplitude we follow out to about 30 minutes or so. Now, during this whole process, the machine's calculating this estimated percent lysis as well. And 30 minutes after the MA, we get the lysis 30 or the lysis time of 30 minutes, which is important to us in terms of traumatology. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, a little later in terms of lysis 30 and some of the studies that are being done uh, with lysis 30 and using that to treat the patients with TXA or not in trauma. Right. Um, so we have this indication of clot formation and then 30 minutes out and also 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes and 60 minutes out we get this indication of is there lysis in our clot Um, so basically the whole process can also give us something called the G value which gives us clot tensile strength 
When we think about uh, tag or rotem, we think about coagulopathy. But we can also use it to give us an indication of the hypercoagulability state of the patients and treating them in terms of chemoprophylaxis in either the time leading up to surgery or that post-operative period where they have an increased incidence, say, in venothrombotic events. So it basically is a, a three-dimensional picture of, of clot formation. Great. That's really helpful. And I think that that is so key is that this is actually unlike, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but unlike laboratory testing, INR, PTT, um, platelet number, this is not telling you the quantity. It's telling you the quality. It's actually what's happening. How is the clot forming in, in actual blood? It, it is giving you the quality uh, of each of the parts. Right. But more important, um, not just each of the segments, but how each of the segments interact. Right. Absolutely. So let's just review that piece. So, and everyone, if you haven't seen, I mean, you can easily Google and get a million of these pictures, but a tag tracing looks kind of like a wine glass on its side. It's got a, it's got the stem, which is a flat line, and then it starts to separate, as, as Bob said, and uh, goes up until you're, you're, you've got an amplitude that is like the width of the open wine glass that continues on. And so from that beginning to right after, so you said two millimeters after the uh, split happens, so right after you leave the stem of the wine glass, that's going to be your R time. And that R time we think of as being an indicator of factor function, right? Factor function, or you could even prolong the R time basically with hemodilution. Right. And um, so the, the key point of that, that split point to that R time is an indicator of the, the efficacy of the thrombin burst. That's where it occurs. Now, on TAG, we can also get a thrombin velocity curve. There's... Um, a selection up to the top right, and it looks like a yellow curve. And that gives you maximum rate time to maximum rate and actual thrombin generation numbers. So instead of looking at the delta, the R time, the split point, we actually now can get a measurement of the thrombin burst itself, which is really a key. Yeah, that's great. And I think this is a piece a lot of people don't know about, is they know the R time, but they don't realize is it the other piece of information there, not from the beginning to that two millimeter spot but from the split to the two meter millimeter spot right. that's that thrombin burst Correct. and then there's also the the uh, the additional way to look at it that you mentioned and then the uh, k is going to be the uh, which you said is going to talk about kind of fibrin um kinetics and that's going to be going out to 20 millimeters Correct. and that's from the beginning to 20 millimeters or from the split point to 20 millimeters from the from the beginning to 20 millimeters. So, so it's basically the 20 millimeters of clot thickness when it occurs. So that time is then measured. If right. it's prolonged, you have a decrease. If it's shortened, you have more robust fiber kinetics. Great. So, and then you've got your alpha angle, which is going to give you the um, robustness of the um, fiber and kinetics. Uh, and then you've got... And basically the beginning of that interaction between right. platelets. How, how steeply it breaks off, it breaks off from, that, from the wine Now, stem. there's a caveat there as well. You have to look at that shape of the tracing mm -hmm. and the actual values. Because if someone bumps the table while it's, this tag is starting to run in the R time, it'll actually cause a split point. The tag doesn't know the difference between somebody bumping and someone not. So it'll measure the split point from there right. and miscalculate your alpha angle. Good so you, there, there are little things that, 
And, and that's a little deeper right. into the caveats of it. Right. But important to know. And, and again, that's why, you know, just like anything, you don't want to only read the chest X-ray read. You want to look at the chest X-ray. Similarly, you don't want to only look at these numbers. You want to look at the tag printout. So in general, and you tell me, what, what I think people are taught on a basic level is that you look at the R time to decide if it's prolonged, you need to give FFP. If you, you look at the MA, the maximum amplitude, to say, if that's low, you need to give either fibrinogen or platelets. Um, do you th- is that accurate? It may be a little bit of a simplification, but is, do you think that's it is accurate? A, it's accurate. It okay. is a simplified, accurate way of looking at it. Okay. And there, are, there are many different um, recipes out there, what works best for your institution, or uh, there's a lot of data out there. A lot of places have um, their protocols published. So you can actually search uh, for those if you like to establish it in your own institution. Okay, great. So if the MA is prolonged, uh, if the MA is, is, is low, sorry, if the MA is low, that could be either that your fibrinogen is low or your platelets are low or one of the two is not working. It may not be low, but it's not working well. So how do you, how do you differentiate those? I go back to my fiber kinetics. I go back to my alpha angle, my K if my K is prolonged, my alpha is narrowed, I think more of fibrin kinetics there. Okay. Um, people will give cryo for that. Uh, but there's another way to tease that out. It's called functional fibrinogen. And um, what we do is we get basically two maximum amplitudes. A maximum amplitude related to both the combination of platelets and fibrinogen uh, or fibrin. And... Um, Another is another way to do it is it'll get just getting a functional fibrinogen, which is a way of teasing out the, the, the component of the fiber kinetics from the platelets. And uh, how that's done is a second sample is run in a corresponding uh, cup or crucible. And what is done there is that they add heparin to the mix now. Uh, prior to that, we added calcium to counteract the citrate. But now we're adding heparin to that, that mix to um, inhibit the platelet component of the clot. So we're really right through antithrombin 3, we're, we're, we're inhibiting uh, really the thrombin activation of the platelets, basically, if we take it back one more step. However, we, we need to activate and to cleave that fibrinogen fibrin. So to the mix is added reptilase. Reptilase is a thrombin surrogate that's not affected by antithrombin 3. So by adding reptilase and factor 13, we get a fibrin, fibrinogen MA. So the difference between the fibrinogen MA and the platelet MA is actually your fibrinogen component to that clot. So we can then tease that out and, and get more of a, an in-depth look at, uh, at our clot formation. Great. So that's really interesting. So let's say your MA, your regular MA is low, is, is, is narrow then you do a functional fibrinogen, and if your fibrinogen MA is normal, then now you know it's the platelets that and are you, the problem. Yeah, usually you'll see your fiber kinetics are normal as well. Right, okay. And so that's one way, do the functional fibrinogen, or, as you said before, if your K is low, your alpha angle is low, then that would point more toward fibrinogen as the problem right. rather than platelets. Your fiber kinetics, correct. Great. And that's right. actually, in the trauma world, more of an indicator of uh, probably a positive predictor for the need of mass transfusion is abnormal fibrin kinetics. Interesting. Okay. That's great to know. So if you see that, you would be more inclined to give 
cryo, as you said. Mm-hmm. If you uh, if it, that's not the issue and it's platelets, obviously you're going to get platelets. Um, okay, so now you talked about this lice thirty or the issue of fibrinolysis. So right. normally, when a normal tag readout, that wine glass will not narrow; it will stay, or maybe it'll narrow a little bit. It'll stay more or less open as a wine glass. If it doesn't, if it starts narrowing down to another stem, that is abnormal, and that indicates clot lysis. So what does that tell us, and what do we want to do about it? You mentioned tranexamic acid. I was certainly taught if you see hyperfibrinolysis, you should give tranexamic acid. Um, Is that right? Good question. So um, I think, first of all, we need to look at lysis um, in in two parts here. One is, do we have primary fibrinolysis or is there secondary fibrinolysis? The treatment of either is quite different. Okay. And um, how do we tell? So in primary fibrinolysis, um, we'll see more of a teardrop, a very um, abrupt uh, decrease after that MA as we come to the, um, come to the end of that tracing. Um, usually, all the other components are shortened as well. Our, our alpha is a little prolonged. Our alpha is narrow. The K is a little prolonged. The MA is maybe low normal, and then you'll have that um, abrupt drop off. Um, in secondary fibrinolysis, like you see in the beginning of DIC, we have a, a very robust curve, almost a hyper, a really a hypercoagulable curve. And then we'll see the estimated percent lysis really increase. So we'll have a very, very high um, alpha, a very short K. And the, the patient will almost appear hypercoagulable and then have a very abrupt estimated percent lysis um, of, well, more than 20%. So the, those treatments are different. You know, the patients with secondary fibrinolysis, if we see it in stage one, it's heparin and an antibiotic if, it, if it's a septic cause. In primary fibrinolysis, say in trauma, it depends now what we're seeing in the more recent literature and some of the work out in Denver, that it, TXA may not be the answer here. We're seeing in Europe that they use mainly components or factors uh, which are have no antifibrinolytic properties. Where in the U.S., we use a high-ratio resuscitation and now as we're seeing some trials with whole blood, we're seeing that the use of TXA may not be so prudent because our resuscitation practices really have a lot of antifibrinolytic properties. So what Gene Moore has shown uh, in Denver is that the majority of patients in trauma who get TXA have this physiologic fibrinolysis, and they have a high mortality. Mm. Those who have uh, or hyperfibrinolytic or have a a, a lice 30, say greater than 3%, those patients have a high mortality, um, may need TXA. Those patients who have a very low lice 30, which they coined fibrinolysis shutdown, absolutely do not need it. So we're, we're starting to separate out patient subgroups and seeing that there may be secondary effects to morbidity and mortality of TXA in the trauma patient. Hence, why thromboelastography or elastometry is really important early on in these patients. And now we're seeing some subgroup analyses of some of these major trials like the CRASH-2 and the MATTERS. And we're seeing that with these um, secondary analyses, sub-analyses, 
that there's actually an increase in venothrombotic events in patients who receive TXA. Mm. So we're, we're taking a harder look at it now. Great. That's really interesting. And so what I'm hearing you say is that there, there's more than, as, as always with many things, there's more than one cause of fibrinolysis. Uh, even within the, the primary, there's more than one cause. And so there may be some of those subtypes that benefit from tranexamic acid and others that don't. And so we want to kind of tease that out. And it sounds like there's a lot of work still being done. So what can we say to people, if you get a tag tracing that shows primary fibrinolysis, you should or shouldn't give tranexamic acid? Or is, we, can't, we can't answer that question at this point. I, I think that that question is still trying to be answered. Uh, and, and now also it's a matter of timing. Uh, from the CRASH-2 trial, it was greater than three hours. Um, and now with some of the sub-analysis, it may be uh, down to one hour if those patients have hyperfibrinolysis, uh, and which also leads to the question, should these patients be getting TXA pre-hospital? Um, I, I think that if there's prolonged transport times, prolonged extraction times, and these patients have hemorrhage, and that's all you have uh, at the scene, then I think that's what we should be giving at this point in time. It's totally anecdotal evidence because there's a lot of evidence on each side okay. uh, to balance that out. But um, that still remains a question to be answered. But I think in mature trauma systems where we have the ability to test for this, I think we should identify those subgroups primarily. Okay. So that's great. And of course, as always, you want to know what your own hospital policy is, or if you're an EMS, what your own agency policy is so that you are following those regulations and that will answer the question for now. But very interesting to know that there aren't, um, it's not clear cut and the answer is still to come. All right. You mentioned before hypercoagulability. So I assume with hypercoagulability, you would see things like a short R time, a short K, um, very, very uh, alpha angle that's sharp or that's, that's large, uh, and then potentially a large MA. Um, anything else? Are those, is that true, all that's of that? Basically, yeah. That's basically, yeah. Okay, so that's what you see. That would indicate someone's hypercoagulable. A high, um, and what we also, the estimated percent lysis that I spoke about is, is calculated throughout the, the tracing, but um, it's converted eventually into something called the G value, which measures clot tensile strength, kilodynes per centimeter squared. And that gives us an indication as well, and that correlates a bit with venothrombotic events postoperatively, thromboembolic events. So by looking at um, the hypercoagulability or the clot tensile strength, the higher that is, the higher that, or the more the correlation between VTE postoperatively. Great. So that's another way to look at it. We could, we could say, all right, if the patient is hypocoagulable, are we developing a clot that has good tensile strength, or if those patients come in and they're postoperative in the ICU, do they have too high of fiber kinetics? Do they have platelet hyperaggregability? Uh, so we can treat that accordingly. So we could use it on, on, on both sides. Okay, great. That's really interesting. Um, so we touched on this in our last episode on trauma, but what are the advantages of a thromboelastogram over traditional coags in, that you might send? INR, PTT, PT, fibrinogen numbers, platelet numbers? Basically, there's a place for both here. Okay. Um, when we send standard laboratory testing, we talked about uh, the split point and that R time. When we get to that R time, that's, that's about an approximation of where our standard laboratory testing ends. Mm-hmm. 
And we haven't even gotten to the K, the alpha, the MA, separating out the functionality of the fibrinogen in the clot. Yeah. So we're, we're really shortchanging ourselves in terms of the big picture. Mm-hmm. We're getting a very, very small piece, and that is because all the cells that are needed for the thrombin burst, for the platelet activity, they're all discarded because they're centrifuged off. Right. So basically we're getting a very early picture of clot formation in terms of factor activity, but not the interaction of the whole blood overall. Um, it's important because there, um, there are things like platelet numbers. Um, we found that in a non-bleeding patient, maybe 50,000 is, is what we should look at in terms of platelet numbers. It was 100,000. However, in trauma and in a bleeding patient, it's nice to keep track of that numbers. If you have a decreasing number of platelets, even though you are bleeding and your MA looks good and everything looks great, but you have active hemorrhage, we should really keep track of that downward trend of numbers, not only function. Right. It's the same thing with fibrinogen. We don't want to get to a point where now we're thrombocytopenic because of hemorrhage and we've just been watching tech. There's, there's a place for both. So you need, you need both uh, aspects, both number and function. And I think this gives us a better overall picture. Right. That's great. So, I mean, I think where it's really helpful, you may have normal platelet numbers, but a low MA on your tag, correct. that would tell you your platelets aren't working correctly. In terms of aggregation, correct. Right, right. So that's that's super helpful. And what you're saying, which I think is also really important, is if you have a normal MA, but your platelet number is falling, that you know you may want to act on that, especially well, in a yeah. bleeding patient. And, yes, and you know, the presence of active hemorrhage, of course. Right, absolutely. Okay, so... Um, when we look toward uh, the future, uh, are these you know? Do you, are you aware of any kind of exciting new um, things on the horizon? I mean, these are these are very exciting technologies. Are they kind of where they're going to be? Are there things that are that are coming? I would imagine maybe smaller machines, more you know, point of care access, as you said, that's coming. Anything else? Rotem and and uh, both Hematics and Rotem have new devices coming out um, right now uh, in terms of Hematics, the Teg Six S is basically a cartridge-based system uh, where you uh, add a very small aliquot of specimen to a line and you plug that cartridge in. Um, the cartridge, then depending on what cartridge it is, if it's uh, global like uh, coagulation analysis, it'll give you a kaolin, which is the activator, kaolin with heparinase. Now, that's an important thing that we didn't really touch on is that patient... Right who is heparinized, uh, and we're looking for heparin effect, um, we send both a kaolin tag and a tag with heparinase to um, give us some indication if that bleeding is still residual heparin effect, if we have adequate heparinization uh, of, of that patient, uh, if we're looking to anticoagulate. So it gives us both a kaolin and heparinase. It also gives us a functional fibrinogen and a rapid tag, which then gives us a derivative of the R time in seconds, which would be a tag ACT, which is another uh, parameter that we can measure. So it gives you all four simultaneously. And it's not susceptible to movement. It has a screen that's in the, in the actual device itself, and you could monitor it to remote view. So the laboratory, um, most labs uh, like that because it is a point-of-care uh, device. Right. Rotem is also coming out with with uh, a similar device. That's great. So that'll really be nice and, and an even easier way to get these values. You did mention, and I do want to make sure we cover, so 
the way that heparinase would work is if you have a patient, let's say, who's bleeding post-cardiac surgery, they were heparinized and you think they were reversed with protamine, you send this. If your uh, TEG is low, uh, I'm sorry, if your TEG number suggests that there's, there's, there, um, the MA is low, the R time is low, uh, the fibrin kinetics are low, and then you... Well, the R time is prolonged. The R time is, sorry, the R time is prolonged. Uh, and the MA is low, and then you add heparinase and everything goes normal, you Correct. know the problem was heparin. Correct. Uh, the other thing also is you'll see that if you click on that uh, thrombin velocity curve, that that is also decreased because of the antithrombin 3 effects of heparin. So you'll get the big picture, uh, and it'll give you some idea uh, if it is heparin causing the problem. Great. And, and of course, and yeah. the other the other use for that also is patients who are heparinized in the ICU coming down to the operating room. What we do many times is we shut the heparin off two hours before, not really understanding the pharmacodynamics of that individual patient. So actually looking to see if we still have a heparin effect, but being within normal range of our values, we can send those patients down with still some heparin effect with no increase. Uh, incidence of bleeding intraoperatively. Very cool. Yeah, so that would be that would answer your question as to whether that patient is ready um, in terms of being uh, back to normal clotting function. So, and then with the, if you send that heparinase, uh, you send the regular one and the heparinase, if they're both, if the MAs and are low on both and the R times are prolonged on both, then it's not the heparin. Correct. So there's something else going on. Speaking of something else going on, it could be temperature as well in the bleeding patient. We know that when we're hypothermic, that does affect that enzymatic phase. Uh, and when you look at the channels of the thromboelastogram uh, of, of the, the device, they have temperatures. So th- one of those um, modules can be shut down, cool the room temperature, and then adjust it to the patient's body temperature. Then the patient becomes their own control at 37 degrees. So if we send a kaolin tag, and we run one at 37 and the patient is 34, and there are differences in the clotting, we know that's temperature-based and that will correct with warming instead of multiple component therapy, which also then immunosuppresses and increases morbidity. So that's another way that we can use the devices. That's great. Very cool uh, opportunity to to weigh the temperature uh, component of this as well. So this is great technology. It's really interesting. We use it all the time here. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to be used more and more as it becomes more accessible and smaller and more point of care. And, Bob, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was what about patients on Plavix? We talked about patients on heparin. Can we get any information about patients on Plavix? Well, we can actually map the platelets, and um, especially in cardiac surgery, it's, it's been um, – it's been studied extensively looking at and, and practicing and private practice cardiac myself. We would map our patients on whoever came in on aspirin and Plavix. And, and if they were elective, we would actually wait and until their um, maximum amplitude in terms of platelet mapping, ADP and arachidonic acid pathways were somewhat normal. I, I think one of the studies that was done out of Stony Brook was an MA of 46.5 or higher um, or it shows a decrease in chest tube output, 46.5 lower, was predictive for an increase in chest tube output postoperatively. So um, what you then, uh, what the lab can do is actually give you a percent inhibition and a raw ADPMA and arachidonic acid MA in the terms of uh, aspirin 
or the cyclooxygenase thromboxane A2 pathway. Um, in, in terms of ADP and Plavix, um, and also we know that trauma patients have ADP suppression. Don't know where that really fits in the trauma world. Uh, if you look at how clot forms, the platelets that have a higher ADP activity basically form the center of that clot. The ones with lower ADP activity kind of are on the outside and still floating around. Mm-hmm. They didn't have, I guess, what it takes to make the clot. So are we actually seeing those platelets or is there actually a direct suppression? But in, in terms of Plavix, it's, it's interesting because uh, clopidogrel is a prodrug. And you need that cytochrome P450 system to activate it. Mm-hmm. Most patients on Plavix are on statins, which also utilize the same pathway. So what we see is that the uh, efficacy of Plavix is decreased on patients with statins, and everyone on Plavix and aspirin is on a statin. Hmm. So one way to see the efficacy of your decrease in platelet aggregation, and now that's another important fact, Plavix affects aggregation of platelets, whereas aspirin affects platelet adhesion, basically collagen-based to the vessel wall. Okay. So w- we actually can separate out both of the types of platelet inhibition, whether it's adhesion or aggregation. And and mostly if you want to inhibit platelets, it's really aggregation uh, from the uh, the tissue factor pathway, which we deal with more uh, in trauma and, and post-operative trauma patients in the ICU. So we can actually get percent inhibition, functional fibrinogen, and overall MA of thrombin, right? The, the normal thrombin um, gives us that, that initial MA, but we can tease out every component of that depending. On what on, you add to that. On what you, what you add to that. And uh, then we add the arachidonic as an ADP to look at the actual percent inhibition. Uh, the other interesting fact is patients on SNRIs and SSRIs have a decrease in ADP uh, activity as well in mm. platelets. So we're finding out there are many other medications that give us ADP suppression in platelets and may affect the overall picture of coagulation in these patients. There's a ton we can learn from this. It's really interesting stuff. Anything else you think we need to cover before we end? The one, one thing I'd like to mention is, yep. is pa- a lot of patients come in who are trauma patients and they're actively bleeding and the caregivers will send a tag and the tag will be normal. And they'll see this very high percentage of normal tags and bleeding patients. Mm-hmm. That's why trauma is a surgical disease. Yeah, We have to close those holes with high shearing forces because we can't clot those. We're trying, and our tags are normal to a point. But um, don't get discouraged. I mean, it, if you don't see an abnormal tag in trauma, that means your p- patients still have the ability to try and clot. Um, and you may, depending on how contracted their blood volume is, uh, how uh, anaerobic those patients are, despite a normal K, you will have to replace a whole blood type of volume in those patients uh, to reperfuse their microcirculation. So just because your tag is normal, don't step back and say the patient doesn't require high ratio resuscitation or whole blood resuscitation. Right. It is because they have a contracted blood volume that you have to identify the, those patients on how anaerobic they are and restore that microcirculation. So it is a component of the therapy, but it is not the end-all, be-all of the therapy. You still have to be a good doc. Right. Still got to use your brain. You got it. 
Bob, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Chad. My pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your vacation. I certainly will. All right. Really great stuff from Dr. Sikorsky, as always. If you have thoughts on this podcast that you want to share, go to ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can see this episode and all the other ones, and you can leave comments that everyone can learn from. Let us know. Do you practice trauma anesthesia? Do you use TEG or Rotem? Did we miss something important that you think everyone else should know? Leave a comment. You can, of course, also get a hold of me, ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, please go to iTunes, where you can leave a comment and a rating. And when you do that, it helps other people find the show. And of course, if you are interested in helping support the making of the show, check out patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Big thanks, as always, to those who are already patrons, and a big thanks to Brian Park, who does such wonderful summaries and outlines of the episodes, which you can find posted along with those he's done so far. That is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Bob Sikorsky, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.